when I am in the U.S., I am extraordinarily sympathetic to social democracy, <laughs> and my and a, and a and a red flag for me is a. Uh, socialist in the U.S. that is dismissive of it. That is like my number one thing. You're not with the program. Like there's, yeah. but when I'm in Europe, I feel less like like that. Um, so <laughs> just let's put it that way. <laughs> to philosophy. I'm Lillian. Here with me today is Gil, Owen, and Will, as usual. Hey, guys. Hey, everyone. Hello. Hey. And for today's episode, we're very excited to be joined by a special guest, uh, Professor Martin Hagland. Um, Hey, Martin. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Fantastic. Um, So what we read for today is a selection of Martin's book, which is called This Life, Secular Faith and Spiritual Freedom. And there are so many different issues to get into. There's been some discussion of it, for example, in the LA Review of Books. And I think um, in the kind of recent maybe flowering, maybe that's too optimistic, but resurgence of interest in in Marx and um, breaking the taboo, at least in philosophy and talking about socialism and alternatives to capitalism, um, this argument has been uh, received in various ways, depending on people's concerns. But it is fundamentally uh, an argument about the way that if you accept some claims about the nature of human life and what makes human life meaningful, then there are some conclusions, not only about the social organization of society, but some political conclusions you should draw from that. So I'm just going to say what I think some of the main points are and then invite Martin to um, say more about uh, what you know, how his thinking has evolved, uh, what motivated the the project, and then kind of where the discussion is now. So, um, the the part we read was chapter f- five, um, which is toward the end of the book, but it basically um, starts to invite the reader. Uh, into a conversation between Marx and some arguments about what makes human life valuable. So Martin argues that there is what makes human life valuable has to do with the finitude of human life, um, how and whether we can choose how to spend our, our limited time. And this is a secular way of thinking about the meaningfulness of life, because if there's nothing outside of that finitude, then you have to start asking uh, these questions about, well, with, within these uh, limits or constraints, um, how do we talk about meaningfulness um, and, and freedom? So in this context, there is a critique of capitalism that gets waged throughout the book. Um, on, and you can correct me I'm wrong, if I'm wrong in the discussion, but on an, I would call it an existential level. Capitalism directs how we spend our time, and our time is valuable to us because we're finite creatures. Capitalism is therefore not value neutral, and I think this is an, a really important point. I think that you know, sort of liberal capitalism has been able to carry this mantle of being most open to value pluralism and being neutral about the good life and so on. And I think Martin's argument is that that's that's not true. It very clearly directs how we spend our time. Um, And so there's an irreducible question of value and what we value um, at the heart of how we organize ourselves economically. And ultimately, what's needed is a revaluation of, of value, that if there's a problem with the way that capitalism directs our time towards things that we may or may not value, then uh, a social kind of social organization that will revalue value is what is needed. And the, I think that the, reval, the term revaluation of value is a subtle but provocative term. I mean, subtle but philosophically loaded term. It's a, it's a Nietzschean term, at least that's where I first encountered it. Which is not exactly a socialism-friendly perspective, but it's repurposed here to argue for for democratic socialism. And democratic socialism will change how we spend our time, less in the realm of necessity and more in the realm of freedom, which is where we actually do choose how to direct our lives in the passage of this finite amount of of, uh, time and human life. So... 
I think my, my question for you is there's a there's a, a big picture question about the kind of motivation and, and scope of the book, and then maybe we can kind of winnow it down, I guess. You seem to be saying that if you accept, accept your argument, like I said at the beginning, um, about this analysis of the human condition, then there is a political conclusion to be had here. And I find this extremely, I, I loved this part of the book, but it also makes it so ambitious. So that's in contrast to like a Rawlsian approach to political philosophy, for example, where it's like, I'm just going to give you the guidelines and, you know, justice isn't compatible with capitalism, but who knows what you should decide. <laughs> there is a mu multitude of different, <laughs> different forms. Um, there's an argument here that is both existential and based on uh, the kind of uh, new um, interest in, in, in value theory and what we find value, valuable. And then um, I, I think you try to say a, a, in a response to some criticisms and an imminent critique about how capitalism thinks uh, makes us think about the wor worthiness of our, our lives and, and how we should think about it instead. So I'd like to ask you to say, what made you drive the conclusion that far? Um, to What made it this ambitious? And then I think, I, th I know the others have lots of other, other questions. And how has it been received also? Right. Great. Thank you so much for those introductory remarks. I really, that's, that's great. I really appreciate it. Well, I mean, the first thing I would say that is sort of at the heart of the book on a lot of different levels is I want to show that economic questions can't be separated from existential questions, you know, that social questions can't be separated from material questions, and that that cuts in both ways, you know. And that's also why I'm playing with this notion of value, that, like, on the one hand, especially in this chapter you read, and in the subsequent chapters too, engaging with these very specific debates about value in Marxist theory and in economic theory, but showing that those sorts of questions of value in that sense are, like, inseparable from how we learn what to value, how we value one another, how we value ourselves, how we relate to one another, you know? So like the economy here, like really radically conceived as capaciously understood as the oikos, you know, like the household, the, the home or whatever, like, but globally conceived, you know, and this is part of what capitalism brings mm -hmm. this view that like the very way in which we reproduce our lives is inseparable from how we come to conceive ourselves, how we can relate to one another, how we can recognize one another, that enables certain forms of life, it disables others, you know. And on one level, I take this to be important to, to an important insight of Marx, that like, on one level, this has always been true. Our forms of social life have always been a matter of our modes of production. But there are certain features of capitalism that we can talk about that makes that more palpable, you know, and that's part of the potentially emancipatory aspect of capitalism for Marx. So that's, that's one thing that, that this is like, main argument that like when we hear value we shouldn't he hear it either just in a purely existential sense mm. like what do i value you know mm. uh in some bad existentialist sense but also not just in a technical sense of like value theory where people can get very bogged down you know which is important to master relative surplus value and all these things and i want to like master all of that but then always keep in view like why does this matter yeah. you know how does it enable or disable us, you know? How does it render intelligible everything from like structural un unemployment, economic crisis, colonial expansion, imperialism, all of these things, like the real capacity of Marxist thinking rightly conceived and developed to really explain in a non-reductive way where we are and where we should be committed to going. The second thing I want to emphasize is that I try to root this in an analysis of the conditions of life and life activity. So Lillian said the book is ambitious. I'm gonna to try to say something about, it's even a little more ambitious than she made it out to be <laughs> in the following <laughs> sense, uh, that I take very seriously that Marx's analysis starts with like life and life activity yeah. you know, and organic life in that sense, you know? And part of the argument I start building in chapter four, the chapter preceded the one you read, is precisely that like, the conditional possibility of anything mattering in any universe is that there are organisms. You know, it's perfectly conceivable that a state of the universe where, like, there are no living beings, there are mechanical interactions, chemical reactions, we can render that intelligible, but no one cares about anything. Nothing is good or bad for anyone because there are no living beings who care about their own life and thereby, like, render their environment intelligible as good or bad, etc. You know, so that's a very, and it's very, very important for a proper Marxist perspective to understand that we are also organisms. And part of what it means to be organisms is that like, you don't just seem to 
survive, to not die. You seek to flourish as the kind of living being you are. Mm -hmm. And that's what, and, and this is a first form of freedom. You know, so as soon as we have an organism, we have a minimal notion of freedom because we have an entity, entity that determine like what is good and bad out of their own being. They're minimally self-determining, minimally free. This is what I call natural freedom in chapter four. And then we move from that. Then I say like, well, we are a distinct kind of animal, a distinct kind of organism that with Hegel I call we're spiritually free. But spiritually free doesn't mean supernatural, spooky. It means that we are the distinct kind of organism, which we could also call a rational organism, for whom it is a question what counts as flourishing, you know? So like we can hear like a rational organism, that sounds like the kind of organism who has their shit together. On the contrary, it's only it's a rational me, organism that have no idea how to live, you know? <laughs> no idea. We can study other organisms, have no idea, no clue. We don't know. <laughs> what's good for us we don't know how to relate to ourselves or one another we have no idea like this is what it means to be and this is why like all other living all living beings act on reasons and things can be good or bad for them but they can't have the wrong idea about what is good or bad <laughs> you know uh, yeah uh, yeah like, that is very true yeah <laughs> so, 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 so they act like you know so like a virus spreads among the beavers bad luck beavers too bad it's this shit happened to you Whereas, like, when we're stuck with a pandemic, it's like, what the fuck are we doing? <laughs> like, because, like, we, we, are, we can recognize that we're responsible, you know, and that there is a question for us, yeah. like, you know, what does this say about how we, how we relate to the environment, to one another, to ourselves, you know? And this is the distinct difficulty of what I call spiritual freedom in the book, that, like, we are not just, like, all living beings, like, things can be good or bad, valuable or not, flourishing or not. But the very criteria for what is good and the very criteria of what a good life is, is something we have to learn historically. And that's a painful and difficult process, you know. So in light of that, and that's also why we are the only ones who have modes of production as organisms, historically specific modes of production. We can produce things differently and reproduce our lives in different ways, you know, whereas like. With other organisms, we started their environment. And this is like, if no one interrupts this and things go well, this is what flourishing is. And you can go on in sort of frog flourishing. And that's great. There's nothing wrong with that for them. But our lives don't work that way. And, and, and part of the, the, the way that's expressed is through modes of production. So I want to see then like what the modes of production called capitalism, but that enables us to understand about ourselves and what would be required for us to be free, but also why that systematically undermines our ability to own the question Mm -hmm. or what we should do with our time, how we should relate to one another, to take responsibility for our relations to one another and to the environment and so on, and in no way invite some sort of nostalgic argument about, you know, which people often lapse into. Remark I've never understood this, that, like, to explain what's wrong with where we are, you're like, oh, yeah, maybe it was awesome when people had <laughs> slaves in the ancient polis, or when they we were vibing in the Middle Ages, like, are you kidding me? And this is like, so just to mention one more thing, I'm going to stop talking. But like, that part of the, just to say one more thing about the book as a whole, that like, the way that it intervenes in these arguments about so-called secular modernity, which are usually horrible because they have no analysis of capitalism, right. but the move it's making is to say like, if we want to diagnose what's impoverished and alienating about where we are, that's not because we've lost something, that we should get back to, but we have not yet achieved an emancipated form of life. And to learn what that emancipated form of life is, precisely because it's not given for us the way it is for other animals, we have to go through this painful historical process. And the question is what we can learn from all of this and what it can teach us about where we should be going without any guarantees that we will succeed. And that is the sort of imperative task of thought and philosophy to bring that into view. So I'll stop there for now. It's great. There's so much here. I So I, I wanted to like, get to one of the the things that you talk about you say that there is this sort of need to connect the existential and the economic questions from which there follows political commitments very directly yeah. and so yeah. you know you develop this sort of analytic or analysis of you know the possi very possibility of meaningful life being predicated yeah. on the finite character of our time and that yeah. you know when we start thinking about this existential problem of how it is that we will relate to one another. How do we, what do we value? And yeah. again, it's a very, uh, it's a very concrete question, right? In each case, it is not a matter just of what I espouse, but what I actually do demonstrates the values that I hold. And yes. 
that's only a question for me when I'm not in what you call like this realm of necessity, where my time is determined from without in the form of doing what I need to do in order to survive or as coerced specifically for us by the imperatives of profit and capital accumulation. Instead, that can only really happen. This question of, you know, how it, what it is that I value and how I value it when I'm in the realm of freedom, as you call it, right? Where like my time isn't determined coercively from without, but where I have the possibility of doing something meaningful, specific with my time for myself or for others. And then, so like, what's great then is you get to say, well, then the rational aim, the rational end should be minimizing the realm of necessity and, and increasing the realm of freedom, you know, unlocking more of the finite time that we have for our self-determination and the use of our values. And yeah. it's just, it just is a really, it's a really clean line. I don't know. It's really wonderful. Yeah. And so I think maybe this can help get at like one of the questions that I wanted to ask you had to do with, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, you talk in certain places, both in the book and also in the responses to the you know critiques that the book has gotten you know this is why this is a fairly radical critique of capitalism where it's not going to be sufficient to say establish and i think you even talk about this as like you know hegel sees why this isn't going to work too in the rabble right yeah so we, yeah we have to talk about this yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah even hegel knows please i love a yeah, rabble right like you know <laughs> hegel sees that in modern capitalist society you're going to have overproduction crisis you're going to have constitutively you're going to end up with this sort of rabble that's disenchanted from right and he's like well what can you do he's like well you know yep. give him some welfare that's not going to really do much yeah. or like make up new jobs, bullshit jobs for them to do. And that doesn't solve the problem either. And so like, you know, and then you have to start going imperial and colonial expansion right. after that yeah. to expand yeah. the market. So Which, let's just call it move. not great. Not great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. So could you like, yeah, do, do I have this yeah. right? And could you speak a little bit to like why this amounts to this sort of existential analytic means that we have to have a radical, not even reformist relationship to capital or like why this doesn't yeah. push us towards, you know, welfareism or something. Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. So that's awesome. Uh, let me just walk slowly because it was one point that's key to understanding this. That's very important, especially to the chapter that you read in the subsequent chapters. And it is this idea just to take us back to like the, the uniqueness of organic life that like, and I think I'm the only one who's actually said this, but listeners so you can correct me but like it's very famous right that like this whole notion of surplus value in marx and like you know where does surplus value come from you know and and why can't machines create surplus value and so on you know and i trace all of this back to a unique feature of organic life namely that in maintaining itself it creates a surplus of time you know so and all living beings actually do this uh for reasons i explained in chapter four that so so in their very activity of maintaining their life they create a surplus of time potential free time you know that certain other animals like cats and so on can enjoy use for purring and playing, you know, and that's a form of natural freedom. But we don't only just create that surplus of time. We can also, we're constitutively engaged in the question, what should we do with it? You know, what's worth doing yeah. with it? What's the waste of it? What's the cultivation of it? You know, so there's that quantitative notion of a surplus that is inseparable from the qualitative question. In what sort of social forms can we cultivate this in a, in a flourishing way? And part of what Marx is interested in with the capitalist mode of production is that it shows that we have this capacity to reduce labor time and increase that surplus of time. So not only that we can understand that's free, but we can develop technologies that increases it quantitatively. But quantity can't be separated from quality. So both that produces sort of empty time, you know, free time under capitalism, you're supposed to like recover from wage labor and consume commodities, you know, that's your duty to society to sustain the wealth. So what I'm calling like a revaluation of value, that it's not just about like seeing that like actually what we value is not the labor time that goes into commodities, but the free time we have to devote to answer in themselves, but like provide the social forms, that's why I call it socially available free time, in which you could actually develop your sense of your responsibility for what's worth doing and so on. And if you don't do that, if you have like, still have the same mode of production for producing the wealth, then you're going to be stuck in all of the contradictions that I track. So I try to show very rigorously that like, as long as we have wage labor, which I define as the essence of capitalism, then that will systematically produce unemployment, crises, overproduction, imperial expansion, and no form of redistribution will ever solve that. So there's a very, in the up to this, I develop a critique of all sort of redistributive measures, whether it's universal basic income or 
the welfare state and all of these things, while they can have local palliative effects, you know, since they all depend on the production of wealth that is generated by wage labor, they're going to be haunted by these structural contradictions that can't be resolved. So I'm both trying to provide like a very rigorous account of what capitalism is, because people throw around the term all the time, <laughs> but then it's like, but without, often without any rigorous definition, like, oh, why are neoliberalism and 19th century capitalism both capitalism? What is the minimal common denominator that rendered them intelligible as the same form of life? And why is that inherently contradictory in its very measure of value, regardless of how you reform it? And like, what would be the principles in light of which we would have to reorganize our form of life so that we would not be subjected to those contradictions? Mm -hmm. And those are the principles mm -hmm. of, of democratic socialism. Sorry, that was no. very long, but we can unpack all that. Yeah, I'd like to jump in. That was, that was really good. So um, you hit on something that you talked about in the LARB, but I also yeah. want to loop this into the, the, um, the This Life book. So you, um, you push back against, I believe it's Walter Ben Michaels, you yeah. know, who says, you know, why do we need all of this? Why not just do redistribution? And before I get ahead of myself, you are very clear redistribution is great. Yeah, you know, we shouldn't be against reforms. We shouldn't be against making yeah. people's lives easier. Thank you. We support right. it. <laughs> but, yes. but what I, I I thought that was really philosophically interesting. What you're you're doing is that you know you use this language of form of life, and I take it that you know part of what's going with form of life is you keep using this word of intelligibility. Yeah. yeah. And you also want to critique the conditions of intelligibility under capitalism. Yeah. And the issue is that the way that capitalism measures value given its mode of production, it actually is not intelligible under this form of life. This notion of socially um socially produced free time. Yeah. And so what I thought was really interesting, I wanted to hear more about from you is, you know, on the one hand, one might hear you talk about this not yet business and say, well, how can philosophy have anything to say about something that's not yet? It hasn't existed. So is this mere speculation? But I think you know, you're providing response to that by trying to enunciate new conditions of intelligibility, or at least showing what is not intelligible in this mode of production. And, and two, I wonder if like your, your pushback against Walter Ben Michaels is, you know, to say something along the lines of the structures or the conditions of intelligibility, we shouldn't even understand capitalism only as a problem of unequal distribution. Yeah. We should understand that the conditions of intelligibility are rooted in how we produce and how we um, are able to make sense of what we produce as valuable. Yeah. And so I was wondering if you could bring that together because you know, some might say you, know, you, you end up uh, in the position of democratic socialism, which I believe you think is different than you know, social democracy. Yeah. And I want you to connect that to production and intelligibility and yeah. how you're able to make this sort of more perspective argument given it's not a world we have seen yet. Right, good, good. Okay, I'm going to try to walk through that as clearly as possible, and please ask for clarification because it's an important point. So the first thing to say, it's very important that, as Lenin mentioned, that my critique of capitalism is an imminent critique in the sense of like, when I'm saying there's a contradiction in how value is measured in the sense that like, formally, when someone pays me to do something, my time is recognized as valuable. And you can see that that's a cost for me because I value that time and in principle to do something that would be an end in itself, right? So what bestows value on commodities under capitalism is like measured in terms of like, the only way to get that value system going around is to keep having wage labor, keep having time spent on things that are counted as a cost, as something that you're doing merely as a means to an end, such that like, even when, we don't need people to work for various reasons. We have to find jobs because if they don't get a salary, they can't consume commodities and we can't produce wealth, etc. There are lots of walking through that argument. But that's a, it's not just that like, that's the wrong system of intelligibility and we need another one. It's that like, that is a self-contradictory form you know, where we can see that like, built into all of that, the only way in which wage slavery is even recognized as a cost, you know, both for the one who sells it, but also within the form of life where we actually you know, don't, at least I'm not supposed to have slaves, but we recognize when I, when I, instead of enslaving you, I pay you, I recognize, however minimally and inadequately, that your time is valuable, you know, and that you own it. You know, that's part of what's pro a progress with capitalism for Marx, you know, that there's a form of recognition that each one owns their own time and that that time is valuable. So there's a recognition that, like, what's really valuable, even by our own lights, is time spent on things you can recognize as ends in themselves that are worth doing for their own sake. And yet we cannot value that as a society because when we decrease how much people time people spend on wage labor, that doesn't register in terms of how we measure wealth, you know? So like I take these simple examples, like 
if you live in a household and we get a dishwasher, you know, that's not a problem. That's not an economic problem in our oikos because now we have to spend less time on doing dishes and we can figure out what's worth doing. But under capitalism, such reductions of labor time creates crisis because now there's less labor opportunity and so on. I mean, this has many, many aspects. I can't walk through all of them here. But I'm trying to trace what that contradiction is, all the pernicious consequences it has, why it can't be resolved by redistributing wealth. And that's then like part of the distinction I make between social democracy and, and democratic socialism that I call all types of leftist politics that are about, that limit themselves to redistribution. Again, I'm not against it as, as, as Will said, but who stop there, you know, won't be able to bring into light the deeper pernicious contradictions that will haunt that. And like, on the basis of those contradictions, I try to derive, as I said before, like what the principles would be in light of which we would have to be organized. And those are the principles of democratic socialism. And they're not some abstract utopia. I'm trying to show from within the commitments of freedom and equality that we already avow, why those commitments cannot but be mm-hmm. contradicted as long as we live under capitalism. And then deduce from that the three principles that would have to be structuring our form of life for that not to be the case. So, and I take that to be important both because I think that like much of what passes for critique of capitalism both fails to be rigorously clear about what the definition of what the deepest problem is, but also fails to specify the normative horizon in light of which that's intelligible as bad or as falling short of who we ought to be. And why that normative horizon is not just something we made up, but it's part of like what has developed out of our historical dynamic itself, you know, the way in which a commitment to freedom and equality emerged in and through capitalism and why it cannot but be betrayed by capitalism, but how on the basis of that we can actually specify in a general and concrete way those principles, which are not a blueprint, but are also not just some like indeterminate utopian horizon. Yeah, I find it I find it funny the objection like you know why why do we have to do all of this like why can't we just talk about redistribution because yeah. so much of I think what makes what defines the book and makes it a really great book in my opinion is that it brings together you know it's not doing normative philosophy as some kind of independent unconstrained pursuit your the way that you do normative philosophy is one it's grounded in a conception of life and so it isn't just abstract philosophical activity but um, two it is. It is done in concert with an account of the historical and material constraints, right? Yeah. That that right. make this normative vision difficult to realize. That the that try to account for what it is that inhibits or blocks um, stands yeah. in the way of realizing this normative vision. Um, so yeah, d- that just strikes me as strange. Like uh, what you know, why can't we just go for the redistribution without an account of what well, you provide an account of? Well, here's all of the things that constrain and contradict within this capitalist form of life ever achieving that redistribution to the level that we would like to see it if it were to actually be truly just. Um, so exactly, I really yeah. like, yeah, yeah so I, I really like that. Um, I guess the question I, I want to have sort of follows from that because yeah. so there's that, those three levels, right? The, the level of, um, of the, of life, the existential account you give, yeah. which grounds that second level, which is the, um, you know, normative account of what ought to be. Yeah. And then you gesture, uh, on a kind of third level, uh, like here's what, democratic socialism, like, here's what the social form that I have in view, given these two previous steps, here's what it looks like. Yeah. Uh, my question is, and forgive me if I'm, you know, because I haven't been able to read the whole book yet. I focused primarily on the chapter that we read. But um, I guess my question is, is do you do a lot of thinking about what the, like, the move from the second to the third level looks like? What is politics for you? I mean, what is, what is it that, without getting into blueprints or any of that, what yeah. does the kind of struggle or the kind of political activity that that might drive towards that transfer. What's your what's your theory of change? I guess is in a right. in a kind of broad uh, in a kind of broad sense. Yeah, great. That's a good and important question. So because in a way that you're right that the book what it does and this was very intentional. It on the one hand tries to give a very rigorous account about what's wrong and self contradictory about where we are and where we are implicitly committed to going. But that mm-hmm. leaves that one question. Then like, how do you get from here to there? What's the sort mm-hmm. of and and I guess there. I mean, my view on this is. When you really specify part of the point of being very rigorous about why redistribution is insufficient, even though it can have real short-term importance, is, is to specify why like nothing short of global proletarian revolution is sufficient yeah. in the sense that like and however scarcely conceivable the horizon that informs someone like Marx and Rosa Luxemburg is, I mean I, I think it 
you know, this is part of keeping in memory that like why the horizon of organization on every level, if it's going to be properly socialist, should have that international global horizon, however extremely constrained, painfully constrained it can seem, you know, and the work philosophy can do there is to sort of like clear away any illusions and really explain even in terms of imminent liberalism itself, why anything else falls short so as to motivate that thing. And also to recall that what is supposed to be unique about a properly socialist revolution, unlike all other revolutions, it's not supposed at the end of the day to be the bagwishing of one class from another or the sort of glorification of the proletariat. It's about the self-abolition, you know, and mm-hmm. the universal emancipation. And I have zero embarrassment about owning that commitment and spelling out what it is, you know, while having no illusions about that giving such an account secure its possibility, you know. But I think there's a very important philosophical distinction between possibility and probability. So you can say, mm-hmm. yes. And, yes. and often what people do, they think like, yeah, this is so improbable. So I'm not even going to, so like, this is the wrong kind of realism, you know. Whereas like, what I'm trying to show <laughs> is that it's possible and Facts. that we demand it of ourselves whenever we hold ourselves to an ideal of freedom and equality and emancipation, you know. So, it's really articulating the possibility and the necessity of actualizing that possibility for having an emancipated form of life while, you know, completely recognizing how improbable it can seem. But the way, the way in which philosophy can change the world in that way is to precisely like holding open and showing that possibility and how it's actually something we can feel the pain of its, of the absence of its actuality, mm-hmm. actually. You know, and we avow it in various ways, even when we hold totally different commitments. So, mm-hmm. so, you know, that's very far from sufficient, but I take it to be one aspect of sort of necessary work. So I, I actually wanted to, maybe just one more follow-up about um, the kind of question of like revolution or rupture. Um, yeah. So I, I, like, I mean, maybe this is just like a, a projection, but I actually think that the, intervention being made in a discussion with like implicitly maybe in in conversation with social democracy is like really important so I, I was actually I'm actually reading this little anthology called the political theory of Swedish social democracy and um something that I think is really uh, Martin just threw um, his hands something up. That, <laughs> threw his hands up. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, but I'm, I'm, I'm just calling them Swedish. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, yeah. It's very important. I, I'm glad you're asking this question. So that was it. Was just sort of like, yeah, I'm Swedish. Yeah, yeah. 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 So yeah. I mean, I think that people who who either listen to our podcast and the other guys know that I'm I'm when I am in the U.S. I am extraordinarily sympathetic to social democracy, <laughs> and my and a, and a and a red flag for me is a. Uh, socialist in the U.S. that is dismissive of it. That is like my number one thing. You're not with the program. Like there's, yeah. but when I'm in Europe, I feel less like like that. Um, so <laughs> just let's put it that way. It's, I wonder why that no, is. It's very peculiar. Like recently, yeah. I was just telling, I was just like telling the guys that like. Uh, like Olaf Scholz like did something like decent with like the energy policies and I'm like wow so he did something that a social democratic governor of a state should do which is that you allow for super profits and then you redistribute them to all of us that is that that is what a normal social democratic leader uh, does anyway which is mm-hmm. not often these days but what is striking in the social the social democratic tradition in Sweden that I am learning about is that revisionism and, and this kind of argument with the Russians and the Germans was was like the most foundational part of that tradition. So throughout the 20th century, it was not uh, revisionism towards like a reformed capitalism. There really was a set of sustained institutionalized arguments about how to have like a, so, a socialized market economy, how to transition I'll just say the reason this is important is because I feel like when people talk about redistribution and inequality elsewhere, what seems to be missing is, as you were saying, this qualitative dimension to the argument that when we are talking about reducing inequality or domination or justice or freedom, it is not a quantitative process. And actually, if you see it that way, then you get all these strange debates, reform versus revolution, when like or race versus class or gender versus class. Like when what a socialist perspective is doing is trying to win you to the argument or to the position that a qualitative change in the way our life is organized is a way 
to create social reform and change um, because we're going to change the way we see each other. We're going to change the way we value each other. We're going to change the incentive structures. Um, this is going to create a different form of, of life. And I think the Swedish Social Democrats, as they, you know, they under, I think they understood that that was a part of the project. But then, like, if you are somebody who's trained on more of like a, a Leninist tradition or, or uh, you know, the far left elsewhere on the continent, then you're, the question is, okay, but you you could have seized power, and it's and it's not because you just were thwarted. You didn't, and there is some <laughs> kind of contradiction in so, in social democracy that like wasn't able to kind of produce the transformation. And so, for me, the question is like the this is a long question. Sorry for the long length yeah. of the question, no, but. The, there's this uh, this problem of transformation and and rupture, and if we say it has to be democratic, and you would also admit for you know like you're going to kind of create reforms that transform people's lives, such that a trans a rupture becomes possible, at some point like the expropriation has just got to go down, like you got to yeah, take these people's property and money, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. and and then and then you have you know then there's the problem of counter revolution and and I'm not sure how democratic all that can be. So I'm interesting. And this is a problem I'm interested in because I'm like in favor of it, you know, but there's this, uh, and I know that there's a kind of concerns about, you know, authoritarianism and so on. So I'm just wondering what you think about that, like how that kind of tradition, like the, it may be the inadequacies and the contradictions within it led to your thoughts or didn't lead to your thinking, how yeah. it influenced you. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much. I mean, for those, listeners who don't know, so I, I grew up in Sweden and like maybe in the last gasp of the welfare state, you know, um, which is now... Sorry. One of, <laughs> which means that like I am, and like a lot of people, otherwise thoughtful people, I thought for a long time that like, you know, oh yeah, Sweden in the 60s, that was great. And if we only could have that globally, that would be awesome, you know? And part of the painful and uh, important thing for me of like really, really studying Marx and thinking about these things is learning why that's not true yeah. and not sustainable. I mean, for several reasons. Mm -hmm. First of all, the relative wealth that Sweden generated after World War II had to do with the destruction of many other parts of the world. So we made a lot of wealth on, on exporting and so on. And also like that sort of wealth could never be produced if, if, if the whole world was a welfare state, because then you couldn't exploit IKEA, couldn't have cheap workers in Malaysia or whatever, you know, to generate the profits and the wealth that we don't redistribute. Mm -hmm. So that's like, if you understand the deepest dynamic of capital, you will both see that like, it's inherently non-universalizable, first of all, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. the, the whole yeah, world well can't put. become a welfare state, then you will not, we won't be able to generate the wealth that supports certain welfare states. So that's one thing, like globally. Mm -hmm. Within it, too, it's going to continue to produce a class society because of the, the way wealth is produced, which means that there are always going to be interests that, that want to block down that radical, gradual transformation that culminated in Sweden in the 70s, you know. So I want to, like, precisely because taking very seriously, and this is why the critique always has to be imminent, you know, I want to see, like, yeah, what are the ideals espoused in that tradition and what's sort of honorable about them, but what's self-contradictory about them if you don't link them to the real conditions of the mode of production, where, like, if we're going to change how we relate to one another and how we see one another, that's inseparable from transforming the way we are producing and reproducing our lives, how we make a living, as we say. That's the question. How do we make a living, both individually and collectively? And the necessity of making a living through capital relations generate all the problems I tried to map in the book. And again, that doesn't mean that I agree with Lillian that like people who just as though they would make no difference if there were reforms in the US, etc. That's obviously like, you know, one should be critical of that. But I also want to avoid it either or. One can say support strategically all sorts of reformist work mm -hmm. while also always keeping in mind and wanting to say that it's crucial to the movement itself that it keeps why that won't solve the larger problems and also why it's not accidental that now the few welfare states that were have all been i mean sweden has had the greatest neoliberal reforms yeah. of any country in the world the past 20 years only chile in the 70s has been more extreme and that's mm -hmm. not like because people are bad people <laughs> or lack of political will you know but because of real structural contradictions that will manifest themselves Right. And if we care about these questions, one has to understand them, however painful it is. And it's super painful. And it was super painful for me, who had a very naive idea of this sort of like, well, if only the whole world could become like Sweden. Like, dude, like, <laughs> when you start thinking about this and understand these, like, like and it's so important because that's the number one responsibility of philosophy is to render the world intelligible. Yeah. 
to understand it, however painful that is, however difficult it is to assimilate, because we're not going anywhere without that. So it's not because I'm happy about this, but because I'm trying to take responsibility for the real conditions that I also have to mount that critique, even while being able to honor the ambitions of that tradition. Yeah, I can remember the day that I, I found out that my free healthcare in Canada was due to Canada owning and operating like 70% of the mines in the global south of like the yeah. resource mines. <laughs> Whoops. But this is why like, this is why I think one of the, the points that you make is that, you know, the sort of fundamental contradiction that you identify in capitalism as a mode of production is also one, of course, that Marx identifies, which is sometimes connected to the discussion that people have about the so-called like uh, law of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. But basically yeah. it's that, the measure of value in capitalism is specifically right average socially necessary labor time and at the same time it's doing everything it can to reduce that to like minimize yeah. socially necessary labor time by technical improvements in you know the relations of production you know technology is really important here economies of scale and so on and so forth and the point that you make about that that's really good that i really like and you do this in a couple of places actually it's one of it's one of the sort of philosophical maneuvers that you're really good at deploying is showing that that's not just contradictory, but itself presupposes a deeper measure of value, which is what you call socially available free time, right? And like the sort of reevaluation yeah. of value that you're pushing us towards and which you think inadequate socialism, socialism worthy of the name would be predicated on is again, not just like better distribution of the value produced under conditions of commodity production, but one where we like actively and collectively recognize that it's socially available free time that is the measure of value as a presupposition for how socially necessary labor time you know can look like the fundamental form absolutely yeah yeah and that's a very uh, i spent a lot of time like working out the sort of technical position of that account and one can't sort of fully convey that if people are interested they can read the book for how that works but what i want to say as a general point that was that's very good Gail, like in terms of this notion of socially available free time, which I say is the implicit positive measure of right, value. Right. And, and what's happened, I mean, a number of very thoughtful people have sort of developed and understood what I'm doing. But what often happens is people hear free time and they think, oh, free time, that's time not free from work, free from socially mm -hmm. necessary work. You know, uh, that's what freedom is, because that's sort of how we are formed to think about freedom and free time under capitalism because labor is alienating freedom is being free from labor free right. from obligations right. i'm just kicking back and doing whatever i want uh, but that's not that's why it's socially available is so important because mm. part of the qualitative point is that our time is always made available in some socially specific way you know precisely because we're social individuals we're not non-social individuals so even under capitalism as i mentioned before free time becomes available in a socially specific way namely as like recuperation from work and buying commodities leisure and leisure time exactly free time is not leisure time right so like right an important point i make in chapter six is that like in an emancipated form of life you can increase the realm of freedom not necessarily by reducing socially necessary work but when that's socially necessary work when you can see the point and the purpose and the interrelation of it i can affirm that as an end in itself to be engaged in that sort of work you know so mm -hmm. it's not that socially necessary work is inherently alienating. One has to distinguish socially necessary labor from socially necessary labor time. Mm -hmm. Because, mm -hmm. so so it's not just about like, oh yeah, we, the machines are going to do everything. I mean, there's a bad tendency on the left to think this, that like, you know, the sort of luxury communism or whatever. Like, <laughs> uh, that's not at all what I'm talking about. If only. It's, it's, <laughs> it's super, super important that like really free labor, and as we all know, you, if you affirm your freedom or not, that's a, can be in the most intense work, whether that's your own creative philosophical work, but also like in doing things yeah. for the people and the causes that matter to you. You are free. You know, why are you free? Because the conditions of freedom for a rational organism are very specific. Like we need good reasons just as much as we need good nourishment. Mm -hmm. Let me try to like explain this in a simple yeah. uh, way. So like, just Please. because I w really want to get this into view because I think this sort of like, normative conception of freedom that is really expressive it's very important that we can show that we have that on the left you know so like simple example my nephew when he turned two years old the day before his birthday he didn't want to go to bed and his mother my sister was like trying to get into bed he was like oh this felt like coercion you know like i don't want to go to bed you're limiting my freedom i'm two years old but i'm a rational organism of course you know, and then she said, like, he said that but, I, I know it. No, no, but in practice, he kids are so precocious. That. He embodied that. Yeah. that he embodied, like, I mean, you know, 
that was too yeah. practical judgment in the situation. It's like, who are you to tell me to go to bed? Mm-hmm. You know? And then she says, like, well, if you don't go to sleep, then you won't have any energy for your birthday tomorrow. Nice. And he was like, oh, that's a good reason. <laughs> I can see that. Can that's work, a good reason. Work with this. Uh, that makes sense. So now going to bed is actually, I can will that as my own free activity because it mm-hmm. makes sense in relation to the, my commitments and the life I'm living. So now it's no longer to a, fun, the same a fun second birthday. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And that's the thing that like freedom is not being freedom from constraints or freedom from obligations, but being able to recognize mm-hmm. those obligations as expressive of our own commitments. So then even if I have to get up early in the morning and work really hard, it's an expression of my freedom because I can see it, you know? And then part of what we have to learn historically are which sort of reasons are actually viably good reasons that we can sustain in the form of mutual dependence on one another. Yeah, I wanted to jump in real quick because something else that um, I really loved about your book, and this is kind of also in your example of um, social democracy in Sweden, but you know, um, just to like, you know, kind of foreground the question, I want to ask you about you know, what you think about the state because yeah. I, yeah. I think in, in some Marxist discourses, it might seem as if you're departing from you know, the, the line of the withering away of the state, but your conclusion is that some form of the state is necessary for um, the the institutionalization of spiritual freedom. So yeah. something that I liked, you know, real quick, and I and I want to see if you can loop this together is right. one. Awesome. You take something that Sartre says in his either famous or infamous you know uh, lecture, existentialism, humanism is I can't be free until everyone is free, and he's been pilloried on this. Like he doesn't really substantiate, but you seem to like you know, substantiate it by you know really grounding it in the mode of production and the contradictions under capitalism. Yeah. So I am wondering how it is you understand that the state is necessary for something like, you know, for me to be free, for me to be able to recognize my commitments and, you know, to be a socially free creature that everyone needs to be free. So I know you, you're, it's not a blueprint for what the state should look like, but why do you think that the state is necessary to achieve this, you know, this necessary value of, you know, for me to be free, everyone must be free. So what is the role of the state here? How would you respond to someone saying, no, in order for that to be true, we need to right. abolish, you know, the, the state or we need to let you know the coercive mechanisms that we associate with the state die away, and only then can we be you know um, socially free creatures. Great, great. So this allows me to tie together a lot of things. That's great, Will. Thank you so much. And I think it also will connect to a thread that's been sort of ongoing in the pod about Hegel's philosophy of right. So that, that might, mm-hmm. be, might make for a nice continuity. So the first thing to say is when, and this is sort of at the center of my debate with with Claire Roberts too, that like. Me using the term the state in the book, it was partly a provocation, but it's also like led to a lot of productive discussion, I think. But the key idea is, is the following. I mean, like the state, as it is understood in the Marxist tradition and by Marx, if we mean by that the sort of coercive apparatus for maintaining force of class domination, that should absolutely wither away and be abolished, you know? Uh, so, so that's Agreed. not what I'm saying. It's not like <laughs> uh, uh, just as private property and so on, you know? But the key is this, and it's directly related to my sort of imminent critique of Hegel in the, that is in the book and is also going to be continued in, in further work. Because one of the really great things, even though Hegel's actual account in terms of like the sorts of institutions he thinks are sufficient for freedom are wrong because they're predicated on private property and he even has a specious arguments for like the estates in terms of classes and so on. But the really brilliant thing about the philosophy of right is that Hegel says, like, what we have learned, and this I think is absolutely true historically, is that, like, for living beings such as ourselves, what I've been calling rational organisms in this situation, to lead a satisfying life, we need to be able to live our lives, engage in our activities, and be recognized in three inseparable but distinct spheres. This is what Hegel calls a family, civil society, and the state. And we can be extremely critical of what Hegel has to say about the family, what he has to say about civil society and what the state, and still recognize that like these are not arbitrary divisions, because the family in this thin minimal sense would just be, you need each individual in their building and socialization and coming of age needs a sphere in which like they're recognized just as the as the particular individual they are, you know? The people who care about me because I'm Martin, you know, it doesn't have to be private property, marriage, patriarchy, all sorts of other garbage. We can abolish all of that. 
But that's not abolishing like the family as a form of intelligibility for rational life. Yeah. That means mm. that like we distinctly to understand yourself as a full individual. You, I need on the one, both to be recognized and socialized in such a context that can be very capacious and plastic. But that's the sort of like here I matter as this particular individual. I love and am loved in that sense, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Second category, civil society. Why is that a cat- sort of like an ontological condition for growing into our form as rational organism? Because I also need to be recognized and recognize that this family, however delimited, and our intimate relations are not the whole world, and we don't sustain ourselves. We depend on this whole, ultimately global form of production. And part of leading a meaningful life is being able to like enter into various activities for the common good, what we now call professions, we could call something else, through which I learn, you know, the way I depend on others, the way they depend on me, and I can affirm these things, you know? So like, that's like in the classroom. I don't want my students to relate to me as Martin, the way they do in the family. This is another sort of relation, you know, another relation of recognition, which can be irrational, irrational, but where we can see like it makes sense the way we relate to one another in that. And also then participate in other, not like now, like, oh, I'm just a professor and I order my shit on Amazon and I don't have to care about that. Alienation. Not because I'm alien from some essence, because because I can't take responsibility for what sustains me. I have to close my eyes Mm -hmm. against what sustains my life. And that's a form of spiritual pain. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just like, hell yeah. So, so, so it's that's, like, yeah, yes. but, but you can see this sort of emancipated form of civil society, you know, and then the state, but we could call it like republics, I'll explain this in detail in the LARB response. That's not like, oh, yeah, we need a coercive apparatus to keep all these people in check. It means that, like, the third thing, what also enables me in my life, are the collective forms of self legislation yeah. that structure our global form of life, you know which we have no access to now because it's, we're dominated by these laws of capital that we can't change and that produces all these effects, you know? And even if I engage as a politician, I'm going to be dominated by those and I'm going to have to betray my ideals and I'm going to be alienated in the very precise sense, not from some human essence, from <laughs> yeah. my ability to take responsibility for and justify my reasons, you know? Yeah. But in an emancipated form of yeah. life, distinct from both my family life and my civil society life, Everyone should have forms of participation in the ongoing activity of legislating the very form of our life, not professional politicians, blah, 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 but rotation, etc. you know, and that's sort of in thin, minimal way, not a blueprint, but that's like a deduction. This is the most beautiful deduction in Hegel. This is the real deduction he does that one can lose sight of because people get so pissed off about his blah, blah, blah. (laughs) But the real pure form is a fucking move of genius. Like, it's just completely true, I think, you know. And then, so one could graph that on to the three principles of democratic socialism that I do in the book. One could say, like, well, here are the various ways that they would govern those different spheres, which are not separate spheres. They're distinct. They're not the same thing. But you can't separate them. And to live, to actually live a good life as a rational organism, which is much, much harder than living as other organisms, because we don't know what's good for us and we fuck up all the time, etc., uh, in our very conception of what's good. You know, minimally, even though we can't legislate in advance, we, we, can, we can actually, part of what we learned historically, and what Hegel wants to show us that we've learned historically, is that we need to have a form of life where we can rationally both distinguish between the sphere and see how they're interconnected. Mm-hmm. And rational here doesn't mean like instrumental dominating rationality. It means like I can like give good reasons for why my filial commitments are what they are. I can give good reasons for the professional work activities I'm engaged in. I can give good reasons for the legislative processes I'm engaged in, state, civil society, family. And that, sustaining that life, which will always be fragile and can always come with heartbreak and difficulty, achieving and sustaining that life, that's the highest good. That's the meaning of history. Yeah. I'm so sympathetic to this because, and I, I understand why it would be provocative for you to to hold on to Hegel's term of the state here, but I take yeah. it that you're, because of course of the withering away and all of that, but I think that it is a really good point that in some minimal way, because you're right too, like, you know, people and Marxists as much as anyone else can get really hung up on like, oh, you know, I don't actually like that Hegel advocated for constitutional hereditary monarchy. And it's like, well, that's not really the point. In fact, the point as you see it, in which I agree with is that like, there is no getting rid of some form of collective self-legislation, right? Like that's not 
mm. arbitrary. That's not something you get to get rid of. And I think that this is like a really, I don't know, I find this to be a really helpful like way of articulating why certain sort of anarcho or libertarian kinds of articulations of this I find unsatisfying because it's not as yeah. I can't imagine actually, you know, however emancipated society is otherwise, you know, you know, great. We abolish the law of value. I can't imagine that we just then don't like have norms or like as groups of people living together or like no valorization. <laughs> yeah. Like, we would just would, would don't need to value anything. Right? No. Like what are you talking about? <laughs> right? Like there is going commitments out yeah, of here. Do need to, <laughs> be still normative commitments made about like what it looks like for us to live together and what what sorts of you know rules bind us and instead I, I, I just can't I just can't understand I, I think that maybe one way to put it is right there's a confusion here between the state as instruments of class domination which is the form in which yeah. we know it right that's the, yeah, that's of course, the of state course. we and know that should be abolished and that should be abolished yeah. and like the state as just this minimal recognition of the necessity of collective self-legislation I like this quite a we're bit also, we're also fans on this podcast of not getting like doing neologisms unnecessarily and just like getting rid of the old fat of the old word <laughs> repurpose it we can yeah. you know, we can we <laughs> yeah, can figure it out determinate negation yeah, yeah exactly, what, exactly. what should yeah. be dead and you uh, develop <laughs> what should be kept alive and developed you know? yeah. that's the point yeah. you know it's a determinate negation of all of these yeah. categories so just to push even a little more uh, that was great what you said Gil. i just want to push like it's not just the way i would want to put it it's if we just say and i don't think that's what you meant but just to drive home the point one just says, oh, I can't imagine that even emancipated, we wouldn't have gotten rid of this as though that's even the asymptotic horizon. Right. Whereas like the conception of freedom here is that like freedom yes, yeah. is not being free from right. norms or laws. Right. It's being able to act in light of laws and norms that you can affirm right. as expressions of your freedom. So it's like really, really central that like there would be no form of rational life at all without that, you know, just that we wouldn't be any forms of non-rational life with that their sort of species constraints. But so like so that like participation in something like explicit collective self-legislation wouldn't just be a means to our freedom, it would itself be an exercise of our freedom, you know? And mm -hmm. we talked a little about this before we began, but like my debate with William Clay Roberts in the LARB became very illuminating for this because he was really pushing back on this collective self-legislation point and just thinks of that as something that is done top down to us. And I'm trying to show there that like, no, no, we're always already collectively self-legislating just in terms of like, whenever I buy or sell labor or commodities, you know, I'm reaffirming that collective self-legislation that renders us intelligible as producers and consumers, as capitalists and wage laborers, etc. You know, that's always going on. So the question is not if, we should have collective self-legislation. It's completely non-optional. And if one denies that, then you just have atomic individuals, you know? Yeah. Uh, but if you're going to take seriously, we're social individuals. Capitalism is a form of collective self-legislation. It's just a really exactly, shitty exactly. one. <laughs> yeah. and it's, it's just yeah, a very unfree, it's, yeah, it's a very unfree exactly. form of self-legislation. And, <laughs> and if it wasn't, as I point out, then we couldn't run an intelligence. It's something that we're doing to ourselves. Yeah. You know, it's mm. not something, and that's absolutely crucial for how we can change it and emancipate ourselves. Because if capitalism is this external force that inexplicably is forced upon us, it's also unintelligible that we can overturn and change it. So it is something that we're doing to ourselves and that we're all in practice affirming mm -hmm. that this is what value is, that yeah. this is how our so social relations ought to be. I do that every time I buy something or do something in this form of life. And it's very important to see that it only lives in and through us. I mean, I think that what's really interesting, I'm, I'm recently like, Maybe I say this kind of often. I'm like very interested in the idea of, of value pluralism. Like, um, and I'll say how I think this is relevant. Be I'm interested in it because liberals are the ones that say they, they get to do this. Like, that's kind of what I, what I said in my introduction. Like, the big, the greatest virtue of liberalism is that they can recognize value pluralism. Um, and, and I think that this is, on the one hand, it's it is a type of value pluralism, but it's not but there may be other types. And so what I, I think is kind of interesting about what I'm understanding about Will Roberts's critique of, of the book is that this idea of freedom as non-domination in the Republican tradition is supposed to be like a different kind of normative framing of institutional governments or, or the state. It's supposed to be a different set of organizing principles than, than the liberal variation. And what you say in, in response is that you're, you're, you're making a, a deeper point that like 
that that's true, but neither liberalism nor republicanism is like able to avoid this question of, of value. You're talking about a, a, a form yeah. of life and that it's going to select yeah. for one kind of value pluralism or, or, or another. Um, yeah. and, and so like, you know, you might say that you want a different, like freedom is non-domination in the Republican sense. And that might be preferred, but the question is what kinds of social like form of life is that en- enabling? And that's not sufficient to, yeah. to quite answer that question. There's like a, there is this like, underlying question of, okay, so if, if that is the normative principle, what are our expectations within that framework that are making it intelligible to us as, as non-domination? Because to a libertarian, yeah. that is just straight up domination. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. So like, mm, nice. what, what gives us the ability to say that this is non-domination as opposed to domination? And it actually has to do with, I, I think the value question becomes like really interesting in that context, not because it's something a different answer than the republican answer but it's a perhaps complementary or or uh substantive right, answer right. am i on the right track here does that make sense yeah yeah i mean that's great that's that's very helpful so like put it this way and i think i put it this way in my response to to, to will roberts that well the first point is to say even legislating what should not be a matter of legislation is a matter of collective self-organization, is a matter of form of life. So even to have that sort of non-domination itself requires that sort of global perspective. But if it's not, and this is, for example, as Wilson said, if it's not then also linked to doing away with buying and selling for commodities, which he thinks would be a restriction of freedom, then you're going to be stuck with those forms of domination too. So, but yeah, the most general point is just that like, and I try to show this, that like the sort of revaluation of value that I'm talking about that is the condition of possibility for actual value pluralism in the very precise sense of like people being able to take responsible for their values as social individuals located in complex forms of mutual dependence, you know, and where like it's uh, those values are continually at issue both individually and collectively, so that it can be owned as a sort of living practice. Because that's another sort of distinctive feature of what I'm calling spiritual life in, 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 in the book, is that like all living, other living beings have a sense of an ought, what they ought to do. In that sense, they, have, they value things and they value their own life and their own flourishing. But they can't call into question that, you know, like a dog or a cat, you know, seeks to flourish and values that and values their relations to others and so on. But they can't be like, you know, yeah, but is this really how I should live my life? You know, what's the point of being a cat or a dog? You know, they're not afflicted by that double ought. And that's, we have that distinct form of freedom that like, yeah, we, it's not enough to have reasons. They have to be good reasons, just that they have to be for my nephew, you know? And a true value pluralism wouldn't be like, yeah, we're just tolerant of that people descend into tribalism. But like people are actually genuinely enabled to become socially responsible individuals who continually who see it as an in themselves, both to sort of like give reasons for their values and transform them, et cetera. And that's a living practice. And that's yeah. actually like sort of what we mean by value pluralism, I think, if we think about it. But it's also something that like, well, it's held out as a promise in our form of life. And that's part of why modernity is progressive for Marx. But it also can't be fulfilled because of the very dynamic of, of production. Fantastic. Yeah. All right. I think that does it for us today. Um, We'd once again like to thank Professor Martin Hagelin for joining us. Um, Martin, would you like to tell our audience where they can find you? Well, one of those places at Yale University, which I neglected to mention. Um, But um, maybe online, your Twitter handle or anything you've got coming up that you'd like to, to plug? Right. Yeah. So first of all, thank you so much for having me. This was a real delight and very inspiring for me. So thank you so much. I could have talked for hours with you guys. Same. My Twitter handle is at Martin Hegland. I also have a website where one can find my writings, including these LARB pieces, which I think are really important supplements to the book. And right now I'm deep in work on my I have a two-volume philosophical project. The first is on the ontological conditions of freedom, and the other one is on the historical ones, the Marxian rewriting of the philosophy, right? So I'm very, this was too tempting of an invitation not to do, but I'm very sort of doing groundwork right now. But I have some interviews coming out 
Lierif and I are, um, it's coming out of dialogue on freedom and Marxism that I'm very excited about. So uh, I know she was on the pod before. So yeah, that was a too long answer, but. Perfect. Thank you. Um, we will definitely put the, the links to, in the show notes so everyone can take a look at it. Um, again, the book is called This Life. New episodes of What's Left of Philosophy come out every two weeks wherever you get your podcasts. You can also check us out on YouTube for videos and live streams. Before closing out today, we'd like to take a minute to thank some of the people who are supporting the show on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you, and we are really grateful. Today's new patrons are Ferandra, Anthony, SR, Jonathan Rustler, Luke Hinkton, Elliot, Rob McLean, Gwenel Velga, A.E., Life Weatherby, Johan, Corinne uh, Blalock, Yael Reamer Cohen, ACDC Kid 88, um, Boaz Frisson, Bob and Matt, Luis Martinez, Jack Hamrick, Jared Simon, Jeffrey Anthony. Thank you all very, very much. If you too like what we're doing and want to support the show, please go to our website, leftofphilosophy.com, and click the support button. Patrons get access to exclusive content like locked episodes and bonus videos. In addition, you can support us by buying some of the What's Left of Philosophy merch, which is very cool looking, which you can also find through our website. Follow us on Twitter at Left of Phil, and don't forget to leave us good reviews and comments on your podcast app. With that, thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next time. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Martin. That was great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye.